Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of RD and the Inbetweens. This is the second episode in a series where our guest host, Dr Edward Mills, talks to academics and examiners all about the VIVA process. In this episode, Edward is talking to Biche Migrashka, who is an associate professor in the politics department at the University of Exeter, giving her experience and advice as an examiner, as a supervisor, and reiterating some of the really excellent um, advice and support she's given to our PGRs over the years through our Preparing for Your Viva workshops. So it's over to you, Ed. Hello. Today I am speaking with Biche Magwashka, who is a professor in the politics department, about her experiences as an internal and external, and also as a non-examining independent chair. Okay, so um, could you start just by saying a little bit about yourself, please? Sure. Um, I'm an associate professor in the politics department, and my research, very broadly speaking, is on the politics of resistance, uh, and more specifically on left politics, so left uh, social movements, um, as well as left politics in Britain. And I tend to approach the subject from a feminist perspective. So that's my academic sort of area of expertise. And so what's, can I ask, what's your uh, experience as an examiner then of PhD theses? I have done both, taken on both roles. Well, actually all three roles. I have been the supervisor, a PhD supervisor to um, 10 students, 10 PhD students. And I have been both internal examiner and external examiner. And in addition, I've also played the role of independent chair on numerous occasions. I suppose the first thing to ask is a question that I've asked everybody I've spoken to thus far, which is when you're examining a PhD thesis as an internal or an external examiner, what do you do when you when you get a thesis in front of you for the first time? Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, the first thing you do is you decide when you're going to at what point you're going to read it. And you want to make sure when you do that, that you have several hours ahead of you. In other words, at least in my experience, in my view, you can't read a thesis, or at least I can't read a thesis over several days in small chunks. So I pick up the thesis and I make sure that I have three to four, five hours uh, to focus on it, sit down, make myself comfortable with a cup of tea, and I read the introduction and the conclusion. And this may be very individual, idiosyncratic thing to do. But for me, I need to have a general map of the thesis before I dive in. So I want to have a sense of what the storyline is. In other words, a thesis for me and for no academic um, is it, never read sort of as a, mis- as a mystery novel, if you like, where the, 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 the plot line emerges at the end or the punchline emerges at the end. We like to know what's going on, what the aims of the thesis are, what the argument's going to be, foregrounded at the beginning. 
So I read the introduction. I then read the conclusion. So I have a sense of the, the both, um, if you like, the bookends of the thesis. I have an overall map of the thesis in my mind. And then I dive into chapter one to start looking for storyline as well as the evidence which is going to sustain it. Reading the introduction and the conclusion of the thesis, yes, some examiners may do that, some some may not. But it's interesting to hear you talk about the uh, the storyline um, of yeah. a uh, thesis. Could you say a bit more about what you mean by the storyline? Yeah, okay. Um, so I think it's very important that the introduction of a thesis does four things. And, and they all add up, if you like, uh, to the storyline in some sense of the thesis. The first thing that the introduction needs to do, in my view, is to establish the puzzle or the problem or the research question that the student is trying to tackle. So what is this thesis about and what questions is it trying to answer? The second aspect, if you like, of this storyline has to do with the answer to that research question. In other words, what is the argument of the PhD? What is the thesis that the student is putting forward? So that's the second bit. The third part of the storyline is why that question needs to be answered in academic terms. What is important about that question? Another way of putting uh, this part of the storyline is to call it the rationale of the thesis. What is the rationale of the thesis? And you can have two types of rationale. You can have an academic rationale. In other words, there is a gap in the literature, or perhaps there isn't a gap in the literature, but this is an important question and hasn't been studied. And the second form of rationale that might be relevant, particularly to politics students, perhaps to others, is that there may be a political or social rationale for doing the thesis. In other words, it's tackling a particularly important um, political or social problem that begs to be solved. And the fourth thing that I think um, a reader needs to find in the introduction is an explanation of how they have proceeded to do the research. In other words, what's otherwise called the methodology of the thesis. So just to recap, um, in the introduction of a the, of the thesis, the reader is looking for four things. What is the puzzle? What is the argument of the thesis? Why does the puzzle and argument matter? In other words, contribution to knowledge. And finally, how has the student undertaken this research and why have they made the choices that they have in terms of methodology? Those four pillars um, hold up the thesis in many respects and need to be foregrounded in the introduction and then perhaps revisited in the conclusion. I don't know how you wrote your introduction, but does that sound familiar to you? That sounds very familiar. Okay. Um, particularly given the advice that a lot of people are given to write their introduction last. Um, Right. Okay. Certainly, um, that might yeah. sound slightly odd in the... Does, does that sound odd? This, this may or may not make it into the final cut. I, so. I think I've heard people say it before, but I don't think it's realistic. So what I would say is that your the introduction um, of all the chapters in your thesis 
is the one that perhaps is rewritten and evolves the most. In yeah. other words, I think one can't write it at the end. One has to write it at the beginning because it usually provides the student with a roadmap of what they intend to do. And I always get my students to turn their research proposals, their PhD proposals, into some form of introduction as they expand on the puzzle, they expand on the rationale, and they expand on the methodology, even if they're not entirely sure about the argument itself, because they still have to do the research, if that you understand what I mean. And they then go back and revisit the introduction um, as they move forward. So I think there are multiple iterations of an introduction. One yes. is to go back to it at the end of the thesis when you finish the whole draft. And yes, indeed, one then goes and edits it, um, the final draft, so to speak, at the end of the writing of your thesis. But I yeah. do need a copy, if you like, a draft of the introduction at the beginning as well to give you focus and direction. Yeah, I think that's very fair, actually. And a lot of my introduction was written in the first year of the thesis, but was then quite substantially revised once the argument of the thesis yes. become, had become clearer. I suppose to an extent, the kind of uh, solution part of your four stage, your four pillars might be the bit mm. that needs to be rewritten most there. Um mm. But that's, yeah. a, that's a really yeah. good point, actually. Thank you. What contact do the internal and external examiner have before Viva? And what, what, do, they, what do they have to produce before the, the Viva starts? So the internal and external uh, normally contact each other um, after they've um, read the thesis. In fact, it's the, in, the um, internal's job to organize the time and place of the thesis and to agree that with the external and the student. Uh, then the internal and external um, each separately, without consulting with each other, write what's called a preliminary report. Uh, in that preliminary report, they normally um, start off by summarizing what they think the PhD is trying to do. So their understanding of what the aims of the PhD are, um, the rationale and the methodology. So that's normally the first couple of paragraphs of the preliminary report. That's why it's so important in your introduction to make sure that those key aspects of the thesis are clear. Then they go on to assess each one of them uh, in some detail. In other words, they, they offer their evaluation of how well the student has um, done each, and then they determine a preliminary outcome. In other words, they recommend minor revisions or major revisions or a pass, an unconditional pass. Those preliminary reports are then exchanged prior to the viva, usually some days before, and uh, so, that, so that each can reflect on the views of the other. Then they usually meet wherever the viva is taking place, often over lunch prior to the viva or, or over coffee. They discuss their agreements and disagreements before they go in to the viva. So when, you, when the student enters into the room, the internal and external have already met each other. They've already had a substantive discussion about the thesis and about their views. There will always be some differences. Uh, and they will have come to an initial uh, view on the thesis and its quality and the recommendation they would like to make. At the end of the two or three hour viva, the student will be asked to sit out, 
to, to step outside and the internal and external would deliberate once again and see whether in fact their view still stands or whether in fact they want to shift that view based on the viva. That's why the viva does matter. So jumping forward slightly then, let's, let's just imagine you sat down with your, your cup of tea uh, and the thesis, which is a lovely image, by the way. Um, what would you advise uh, a student to be to be doing in that time? There's kind of awkward 70 odd days. I mean, it can be it can be a, a significant amount of time between the Viva and the submission and the Viva rather. So what would you how would you recommend a student spend that time? Well, uh, I think you normally have about am I right? Three months um, between submission and and the actual viva that was certainly the case for me uh, i think yeah. it can be slightly more than that but also often it sometimes quite be. a bit less yeah. yes it can be more but um regardless of how long you have i think the first thing you should do is actually take a rest um you've probably been working very intensely on your project until submission point and you're probably saturated <laughs> Um, by it. And I think I say that you should take a rest, not just because you should take care of yourself and for well-being reasons, but also because while you're taking a rest, you are gaining critical distance from your thesis. And I think that's very important before you go into a viva, that you develop some critical distance from it so that when you return to the thesis, which you must do in order to prepare for the viva, which is worth doing, you, it's not that you've forgotten what you've written, but that you can somehow see it through clearer, more self-critical eyes. And I think that perspective is crucial. Um, so after you've taken perhaps two, three weeks off, perhaps even a month, if, if, if you can, it, it, it could involve a holiday, but it also could involve just doing other work. What you want to do is turn your mind away from the project uh, think about other things and then come back to it afresh and you will see it with different eyes and that experience of coming back to your project after leaving it for a little while is both exhilarating and exciting but also a little scary and sometimes a little frustrating <laughs> because you of course reread it and realize the strengths of the thesis as well as its limitations um, but I think that's very important that you go into a viva knowing its strengths, because you might even be asked this question by a cheeky external. Um, what are the strengths of the thesis and what do you think the limitations of your work are? So once you've, if you like, undertaken the, the, the moves to put you in that perspective or to acquire that perspective, then you need to prepare to answer four questions. Um, there is no way you're going to have a viva without being asked all four of these questions. And of course, they're not going to be surprising because they pertain to the four pillars, if you like, of the, the storyline of the thesis. The first question you're going to be asked, and sometimes it, it comes up at the very beginning of your viva, is your research question, your puzzle, your problem. They may ask, they may ask the question in different ways. Um, why did you choose this topic? What brought you to this question? Um, why did you think it was so important? But they will ask you to explain your puzzle. In other words, the aims of your thesis. Second of all, they will ask you what your argument is. So in fact, I have been in a 
Viva once where I think the external, I wouldn't have done it this way, but the external, the first question she asked was, so tell me in two sentences what your thesis is. So you need to practice articulating the argument of your thesis in one or two sentences, just in case you're put on the spot. Third, you're going to be asked questions around the rationale of the thesis, why you thought it was an important project to pursue in academic terms, and what you think the contribution to knowledge is. And finally, they're going to ask you about how you did your research. So in other words, your methodology. The entire VIVA will be structured around those four broad questions. And depending on your answers, you will get uh, subsequent questions pushing you to illuminate um, the work that you've done. So I would prepare for the VIVA in the interim. Um, I would not believe what I've heard from some students and some colleagues that the VIVA doesn't really matter. Some people would argue that in the end, what really matters is the thesis itself. In other words, what you've written, that is what's being tested. And that what you actually say in the VIVA is neither here nor there, apart from the fact that one of the purposes, one of the functions of the VIVA is to actually establish that you're the author of the thesis. So that's, a, that's, that's one function. Um, but I would argue that preparing for the VIVA is incredibly important for the outcome in two ways. One, emotionally and psychologically. In other words, you're more likely to have a good experience in the VIVA. In other words, a good conversation with your internal and external if you know your thesis well and you're prepared to answer uh, questions around those four pillars. And I think, um, second of all, if by any chance there is a difference of opinion between the internal and external about what the outcome should be, let's say minor revision versus major revision, your answers to those four very broad questions can help them decide whether it's going to be minor or major. So I strongly advise students to prepare for the VIVA, both so that they have fun and also so that the outcome is as good as it can be. There was one term that you used uh, there, which I think a lot of people will have heard many, many times, but I think it might be worth spending a moment to unpick if that's okay. Mm -hmm. It's the idea of the VIVA as a, a conversation, um, which I think mm. is connected to what you were saying earlier about mm. how, uh, depending on the answers you give to certain questions, the um, the examiners can go down different roads. So when you think of a, a, a presumably a, a good viva as a good conversation, what do you what do you mean by that? How is it different from, say, an interview, for example? I think conversation or dialogue um, as a way of describing the thesis as well as the viva is, is a helpful way of thinking about the whole process. So let me start by saying that in many respects, a thesis or a PhD is in fact the product of a conversation. So in the rationale of your, of your uh, thesis, where you explain why you pursued this particular puzzle, you will need to lay out an academic, academic conversation about your topic. It's often called a literature review. 
So the thesis itself represents a conversation between a group of academics who may agree or disagree with each other and yourself. In other words, when you write a thesis as a student, you're intervening or you're seeking to intervene in a dialogue amongst experts about a particular subject. When you do your viva, then you have a second type of conversation. You have a conversation with two experts in the field about the conversation you've had in your thesis. So in other words, with your, with your viva, um, your internal and external are interested not so much in determining whether they agree with your answers or not, or whether they understand how you've come to them and why you've come to them. Which comes itself to another point, um, which I think you may have raised in the uh, discussion that I was at, actually. Um, mm. In your experience, is it possible to pass a viva even if your examiners totally disagree with your conclusions? Hmm. I think that depends on what one means by disagree with one's conclusions. I'm speculating here. I'm not in the sciences, but I'm wondering whether perhaps in the sciences uh, that may not be possible. In other words, if they think that you've done, I don't know, you've performed you like the formulas incorrectly or misunderstood your formulas or used the wrong ones and therefore have the wrong outcomes, it's quite possible that perhaps you don't pass. Um, I think in the social sciences, um, there's it, it can be a matter of interpretation. So in the social sciences, what they will be checking and what I would check for is the level of scholarship involved in the thesis. In other words, has this student engaged with the, with the relevant writ literature on the subject or have they missed certain literatures out? Do they show a good grasp of the conceptual and empirical material that's out there? And have they managed to mobilize evidence to sustain the argument that they're making? If they do all of that, and I still disagree, perhaps, with either the direction they've taken or, as you put it, the outcomes, then yes, yes, they will still pass. I've had a number of students who have mobilized or deployed theoretical perspectives that I don't find particularly interesting and or helpful. Um, a brilliant thesis can be written using those theoretical perspectives even if I'm perhaps not enamored with them because I think there are problems. So I might raise those problems in the fiber to make sure they understand the limits of that perspective, but I'm going to be very happy passing them if they have done a good job mobilizing evidence for their case and show a good understanding of the theoretical perspective and its limits. So thank you for that. I think that's a really good clarification of a point that a lot of people will have heard but may not have been able to uh, express in detail. So thank you for that. So let's jump forward now to the Viva itself. I mean, obviously everything we've spoken about thus far has been Viva to some degree. Um, but as an examiner, whether an internal or an external, what frustrates you in a, in a Viva? I think um, some Vivas 
I've, I've, I've really enjoyed some vibers and I found other vibers very difficult to get through. I think one of the things that students should keep in mind, as I said earlier, is that a viva is a dialogue. It's a dialogue between three people, sometimes four, depending on whether you have two externals and one internal or just one external and one internal. And I think students should keep in mind that although it's intimate and that there are only three of you in a room or perhaps four, um, that somehow externals and internals are people too and that they may also come to the Viva with their own baggage and in fact may feel a little bit nervous. In other words, it's a performance and the student is performing, but so is the internal and so is the external, especially if there's an internal chair, an internal chair present as well. And so what one wants in the performance of the Viva um, is everyone to listen to each other, to be respectful and polite with each other, and to enjoy it. So one of the things that frustrates me, if you like, is, and I realize it can't be helped, <laughs> is that if a student is so nervous that they can't engage in that dialogue. In other words, if they haven't prepared and therefore thrown by questions about what their puzzle is or what their thesis is, et cetera, then the, the conversation can slowly grind to a halt. <laughs> and that can be frustrating for, for the student, but also for the internal and external. So in fact, you want the students to go into the VIVA not only well-prepared, in other words, they know their thesis well, um, but also, hopefully, you want them to go in with some enthusiasm. Remember, the internal and the external are experts in the field, and therefore, this is the you should see the VIVA as an opportunity to have a good natter with two people in your field who are interested in your project and who may well in the future become um, uh, referees for jobs. So I think, I, I realize this is a big ask because it's normal to, be, uh, normal to be nervous, but I strongly believe that preparing for a viva can actually reduce that problem and, and, and help you perform in a relaxed and congenial way in the actual viva. I think my advice to students who are going into the VIVA is that they, to the best of their ability, and I understand it's a nerve-wracking moment, but they must try very hard not to become defensive in the VIVA. I think I have been in some VIVAs where the student has become overly defensive. I realize it's partly because of nerves. And as a result, the conversation has uh, become stilted and, in fact, times uncomfortable. So remember, students need to remember that the internal and external, um, it's part of their job. It's part of their mandate to critically interrogate the piece of work in front of them and to engage you in a robust conversation about its strengths as well as its limits. So while I'm not suggesting you should concede, 
um, on every point raised by the internal or external critical point. You must defend the Bible. You must not become defensive. You must acknowledge um, that there are some limits to it, and you must show an understanding of why those limits um, arose. But whatever you do, don't go in there defensive because it'll make your internal and external examiners defensive in return. So would you mind saying a bit more about major correction? Because I know it's something a lot of people are worried about. Um, what's your experience with major corrections as opposed to, to minor? I think there are more major revisions than people realize. Let me put it that way. I yeah. think students often think that uh, getting major revisions is a disaster. It's not. Okay. It's not. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the, um, what do you call it, the, the description of each category, minor revisions should arguably only involve um, changes to the text, like typos or adding references or perhaps adding a table. Um, and perhaps adding a little bit of research in one discrete chapter. Anything more than that, anything that would require you to do work that cuts across the chapters, for example, um, will go under major revisions. And yet that, that may be necessary and may not take that long to do. So I think a lot of students do get major. That's my impression, especially since... I think some years ago they made a change and they narrowed minor revisions down to, to very small changes. Um, so I, I would just encourage students to, to, to not panic if they get major revisions, um, to see that as eminently doable. I really like your point about cutting across chapters being major revisions. Um, minor revisions, Ed, my impression is that minor revisions um, should be contained, yes. containable. Um, so it can go anywhere from typos to adding sections of a chapter, perhaps yeah. even sections to two chapters. But anything that requires changing the storyline, as I put it, um, is it usually goes under major. I mean, keep in mind, Edward, that sometimes um, an external and internal will decide to give the student major revisions in part, in part to help them out and give them enough time to make those revisions. So remember the difference between minor and major, it's not just about quality, if you like, of the thesis, but it's also about the amount of time that the internal and external deem to be necessary to make the changes. And in order to determine that, they often ask the student what their needs are and what they're doing and how much time they need. Sometimes you might have a student that's working full-time, for instance. They've, they've had to get a job. And therefore, the internal and external may make a decision, partly about um, whether it's minor or major, partly in terms of the amount of time that they think the student needs. So it's a strategic decision as well. Okay. Um, the last question I wanted to ask was a specific one about the, the role of the, the chair, if that's okay. So... Increasingly at Exeter, and certainly in light of coronavirus, we're seeing a lot of PhDs um, being examined with this mysterious extra person um, on the panel who shouldn't 
and arguably make a huge amount of difference to the outcome of Survivor, but whose role is very important. So could I ask you to say a bit more about that role, this non-examining independent chair position, which I understand you've done uh, yourself? Yes. Um, although I, I have to say that I would, I would question the idea that the independent chair plays any role in determining the outcome of Survivor. They, that's not their role. The, the role of the of the independent chair, the non-examining, that's the key, non-examining independent chair, is simply to, um, to assess, if you like, and to monitor the viva and make sure that it is conducted according to the regulations. So they will not have read the thesis. Um, they will have no view on, on, on the content of it. They will have not be asked for their view on, on the outcome. The only thing that they are responsible for is the conduct of the viva itself and that it is conducted according to the rules. Can I ask a related question to that? Yes. I, this is one like, something I've always wondered myself. Um, what Once the uh, candidate is asked to step out of the room, as it were, or in, in my case, to temporarily leave the team's meeting, yeah, as it was, because yeah. I had, of course, a virtual viva. Um, yeah. What kind of things are actually said between the examiners? This is just a personal question. I've always wondered this. Is it a kind of a, oh, phew, or is it kind of a, okay, or does it very much depend on the viva? It very much depends on the viva, Edward. <laughs> Sometimes there is an oh, phew, especially if the student is either very nervous, in which case this conversation is filtered, and that's felt by all concerned, or uh, in the case where a student can be very defensive um, or just show no understanding of the weaknesses of the thesis. In all three cases uh, or scenarios, um, the viva can be painful. <laughs> and so the supervisors, uh, sorry, not the supervisor, the internal and external can sometimes be relieved at the end. Usually, however, and in most of the vivas I've done, it's very rare that that happens, by the way, most of the vivas I've done, the the internal and external look at each other. And most of the time we've enjoyed the conversation we've had with the student. And in my experience anyway, there's um, often an attempt to be as generous with the student as possible, generous and supportive of the student. And I think sometimes there's a misunderstanding that the job of the internal is to defend the student. The job of the external is to be the critical interrogator. Um, in my experience, that's not the case. Uh, in my experience, the role of the internal is really only um, to make sure, again, especially if there's no independent chair, that the viva has been conducted in a way that is, you know, consonant with the regulations. Apart from that, both the internal and the external are expected to ask tough questions of the student. And it's not the role of the internal to so-called defend the student, unless, unless they feel that the viva is taking an uncomfortable turn and that the external is being overly critical or destructive in their manner. But apart from that, both the internal and external have the same role. In other words, they're there to assess the scholarship um, of the student and to determine whether it meets the required standards. What's your opinion on uh, mock vivas? Do you tend to encourage your, as a supervisor, your your students to have them? Or is, is a mock viva something that you're kind of doing all through your PhD? Um, I would actually encourage students to go through mock vivas. I, I think it's good practice. 
um, if for no other reason that um, it, it might help students manage their nerves. So if they performed a viva already with their supervisor, perhaps, and a friend, so I did it once with a colleague of mine, we both sat and pretended to be the internal and external and took the student through a grilling. <laughs> and I think it worked very well. And hopefully it, it helped the student prepare for the viva because they were less nervous when they went in and they understood the kinds of questions they would be asked. So I, I think mock vivas um, are... are are to be encouraged. Thanks again to Beach for that really uh, illuminating conversation and discussion, which I'm sure will be very useful to those of us preparing for Vivas at the moment. Thank you so much to Edward and Beach for such uh, an illuminating and supportive discussion. Our next episode will be the last one in this mini series on the Viva, guest hosted by Edward, and Edward in that episode, we'll be talking to one of his own Viva examiners. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe, and join me next time where I'll be talking to somebody else about researchers, development, and everything in between.